Hello, it's Jack Tudor here from Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Kate Carr, a sound artist presently based in London. And we started off by talking about Kate's new album, The Thing Itself and Not The Myth, which came out on Jason Leskalit's label, Glistening Examples. And it's an album that was made from sounds captured underwater and along shorelines throughout Europe and the UK. And the titles are taken from a poem by Adrian Rich called Diving Into The Wreck. And when you combine all those elements, to me there seems to be a lot of uh, exploring what happens when you probe from one destination into an unknown, across a boundary, the sense of peering into another location. So obviously you've got the example of being on the surface and having underwater as an unknown space. There's a lot of Morse code on this record, so... This idea of probing to somewhere unseen, sending a message, a transmission to somewhere unseen. And Adrian's poem as well really captures this sense that the sea is an underwater space that doesn't abide by the same conventions that dominate the world upon the surface. It's such an, uh, uh, this is such a cliche word, but it really is an immersive record and it's one that every time I come back to, I feel my physical location vanishing into this liminal surface underwater experience. So you can check the album out over at Kate's Bandcamp, which is katecar.bandcamp.com. She's also got a website at gleamingsilverribbon.com. And if you'd like to check out more information about Kate's picks, which were great, you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening and you'll find all the notes for this episode. Or just check your show notes in your podcast app. That's an easy way if you're listening that way. Okay, without any further delay, Kate Carr on Crucial Listening. Hello, Kate. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Ah, hi, Jack. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, now, I wanted to obviously talk to you about your three important albums that you've brought here today, but also about your new record or newish record now that came out in November called The Thing Itself and Not The Myth. Yeah. Um, I mean, firstly, I understand that the titles and perhaps maybe the inspiration, I don't know, I'll obviously let you talk about that, um, were taken by a poem by Adrian Rich called Diving Into The Wreck. So That's right, yeah. How did you come into the poem and what made you, what led you to think that this would be something that could intertwine quite nicely with a, a sonic work? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, 
I've actually known Adrian Rich's work since I was um, like a first year student at university, so it's more than 15 years ago now. And I, it's actually weird. I went through a poetry phase back then, even though I was studying like film studies. And um, I was becoming a gay, so I was coming out of the closet and reading lots of, in a very cliched way, lesbian poetry. Um, right. And she is a lesbian poet. Um, and so I came across her work through that. Um, I totally forgot all about her for a very long time. And then actually my girlfriend sent me another poem of hers that was about silence, which name is not on the tip of my tongue, but maybe I'll remember it later. And I just went back and revisited her material and I read this was this is one of her most famous poems um and I reread this poem because I it was it was the one I did remember from my university days and I was at that time working on an album this album for Jason Leskelet's label but I really didn't have any kind of much of a clue exactly what I was doing and it was just through reading it and thinking about the material that I was working with for that album which which what which is as you know that lots of those underwater broadcasts and and recordings I actually I've just started to think well this is completely perfect because it's dealing with the gap between experience and language um mm. The sort of the inadequacies of our, our narratives to explain kind of the profundity of of the world, and then it also expresses that through this descent into the depths, um, which is exactly the material that I'd gathered, you know, at various places and along different shorelines. Um, and so that was it. It was sort of like a, I don't want to say it was a eureka moment, but it certainly <laughs> it certainly helped me direct what I was doing, and and I and then I hinged. The, the whole production of the album around around that poem and different excerpts of lines from it. Wow, what a perfect combination. I mean, I, I, I thought it was just meant to be. It sounds like that those parts just kind of came together by themselves rather than being like intentionally entwined. That's really cool. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I mean, Jason was extremely uh, patient with me, which I've thanked him for, for a long, for, for, <laughs> he was waiting for like two years for that, um, for, for me to do an album for him. And yeah, it was definitely, it definitely gave me, a, a, gave the project a coherence was, was just this happy coincidence of, of stumbling across Adrian Rich's work again and at, to do that at that particular time of working with uh, recordings that were really explicitly also exploring uh, underwater spaces. Yeah, I, I was just lucky, one of those very lucky moments. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that the record... Uh, and also the poem to some extent kind of takes place largely at the water's edge so that moment of kind of transition uh, or the boundary between the world above the water and the world below it um Mm. it's such it strikes me as such a different experience than say like a a, a, an album that just has recordings from underwater like you you have so many more different elements to work with there i mean is there something significant um either as a location to record or a location generally just to inhabit about coastlines that has any kind of significance to you personally it is it's an interesting point that you raise and i hadn't thought about it so much in in those dimensions 
I suppose it explored two, two sites, really, if you want to put it that way, the album. It was these liminal zones of, of the coastline, which is in itself always very interesting, isn't it? A zone that is at some point of the day underwater, at another point of the day it's, it's, it's not. Hmm. Um, so it's always in this state of flux and, and change and then also presents a huge array of, of challenges for organisms that want to live in that kind of environment obviously you have to be extremely adaptable so there's lots of very interesting um and i think kind of artistically potent aspects of of thinking about you know the edge land of a of a shoreline if you want to put it like that and then obviously the other location or or type of sonic environment i was trying to explore but in a bit of a different way to to how it often is in field recording was the underwater world itself but instead of just purely recording it i try i broadcast sounds into it and then re-recorded it and i was i was basically trying to think about how sound flows through underwater spaces can the movement of sound and the reflection of sound and then the regathering of it through hydrophones tell us anything about those hidden spaces that lie underwater so in our listening can we can we inhabit those spaces in a different way through gathering sounds in that manner? I guess that was what I was trying to to um, explore. And how did you capture the sounds underwater? I'm completely naive to that technological aspect. I've heard of hydrophones. I know that you can also put a microphone in a condom and tie it up, and that kind of acts as a DIY hydrophone. That's the limit of my knowledge. I mean, how did you yeah. go about capturing sounds underwater? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, okay, so... Hydrophone is the most, um, yeah, I mean, that's the, the usual way that um, a field recordist would, would try and record the underwater. Um, I did a slightly different, I used hydrophones, but I also purchased a synchronised swimming underwater speaker. And so I had this ridiculous setup involving like a car battery charge starter thing, um, <laughs> which I f- like flew from London to, actually, I don't think I was living in London then, from Belgium fast to Iceland and lugged out onto this pier to plug in an amp into the synchronized swimming speaker and then lowered that into the fjord so it was it was a very elaborate undertaking Um, and then I played I played out of that speaker I played various drones and I mean that was that was the thing that I was trying to see how those drones played through um, or reverberated. Actually, I don't know if that's the right word, seeing as it's underwater, because it seems a very airy word. But anyway, reverberated, for want of a better word, in those underwater caverns, and then used um, a hyd- several hydrophones that I have to record those drones. And, and obviously, when you're recording in the sea, there you can hear the sounds of the waves themselves. And in, in Iceland, you can often hear um, shrimp and little clicking sounds and things like that. So those hydrophones gathered the material of, of, of both the broadcast drones alongside those environmental sounds. It strikes me as something that's, I mean, in fact, just hearing you talk about the relationship with the poem as well, when we refer to like the inadequacies of language to explain the actual experience, I think there's something, to my mind, something really interesting about, say, recording sounds underwater compared to recording sounds on the surface, where... If you're recording sounds on the surface, you're perhaps capturing something that has the potential to resemble what you're capturing with your ears. Whereas as a field recordist, recording stuff underwater, it's kind of removed from anything that you would have any direct experience of. Uh, so there's an inadequacy of like 
the point of you know the mode of capture as well to kind of convey what you're experiencing or, or what's being heard under there i mean does it feel is there something different in your mind i mean does it is there is there a different sensation or a different feeling and this is a very nebulous question that may not have an answer but uh is there something different about the experience of recording sounds underwater compared to uh doing field recordings you know in any other setting I think the the first thing that struck me when I started recording underwater was maybe it sounds a little bit kind of superficial or boring, but it's very um, the sound of underwater that's gathered by a hydrophone is very different to the sound um, of underwater as you experience it mm. at, when you just dive in underwater. So you know you you hear a lot of low, very low sounds um, when you go underwater in the sense that the water rushes in and hits your eardrum and that's quite a low pitched sound whereas hydrophones um, gather and actually in their like pickup like what they pick up best is usually like a lot higher sounds it's quite hard to to get a good hydrophone to record very uh, low pitched sounds so that was one thing and, and I know a couple of field recorders too when they first used a, a hydrophone and we were like oh this is shit like, <laughs> 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 I, 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 they were really disappointed because what they expected and what the like uh, technology uh, delivered were, were completely different things so I think that's kind of like more of a sound technical answer but um, I think the other thing is that um, underwater creatures sound really differently to how you would expect or imagine, I suppose. And one of the really amazing um, examples is fish, which, you know, grunt and sound. They sound loads like um, chooks scratching around and grunting and their air bladders letting out, like, I don't know, I don't know if it's kind of akin to some kind of flatulence or, or right. whatnot but they you know they they bubble out and they vocalize to themselves um as well so th- discovering those kind of hidden little worlds of communication between fish uh was was a really amazing thing and i think it does spark your imagination in in ways that obviously a non-field recorder you wouldn't have access to to these kind of stimuli but it is it is a very nice experience to just put the hydrophone in and listen to to listen to the fish squawking to each other or or the <laughs> water beetle the water beetles making make a very high ticking sound uh, sometimes as as they swim along so there's just some very nice just very nice little interactions in, in the ecosystems of ponds and and uh and in the ocean that the hydrophone does um, give you a really interesting way of accessing. Fantastic. Well, I'm having a, a really great time with it and uh, still feels like I'm just on the surface of it. That's that's not a pun. That was not deliberate. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so embarrassing. <laughs> you, oh, you need, to, you need to dive in. <laughs> <laughs> so, Shocking. Sorry. It's yeah. terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep this in so let's move on to your albums you've brought three albums uh that you deem to be important i mean one question i like to ask my guests is uh what they uh, or how they thought about the term important when they were coming up with their list i mean so was there a particular criteria that you applied to that term important to produce the three records that you've brought today um, yeah, because I, fe- I, I realised this after I'd sent them to you. I, I decided important meant kind of 
something that was formative in my more early days of composing. So that's why two of the choices are from, you know, quite old, really, well, very old releases. And, and then I, after I did that, I was like, well, maybe that was just a really stupid idea that I just, <laughs> I just, I just decided to, to fixate on, on, you know, what got me started. But, I mean, as, as, as you know, as you get more experienced in something, perhaps things are less formative or you're more um, nuanced and more varied in all the different sources that you're drawing from. So the Ikeda and the Oval were, were two really big kind of wow moments when I first was discovering sound art. So um, that's why, that's why they're, they remain big touchstones for me, I guess. Mm. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in. I mean, if you want to pick which record you want to talk about first and then uh, tell me a little bit about why it's important as well. Okay, um, I'll, I'll probably start with Oval then and Discont. And I, 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 I just picked this one because it's, I think it's the first one. Um, uh, but I've listened to a lot of albums by uh, Oval, uh, which is now Marcus Pop, but I think at that stage was Marcus Pop and someone else. And I really... I found these out, well, I think they're absolutely beautiful just simply to listen to, but the process that the pair and then Marcus undertook to produce the albums of basically albums spun out of um, CD glitches and this idea of using, you know, a mistake, an error, a misread uh, to produce a whole new body of work is... I th- I think I do still incorporate it in my work in a in a much more subtle way than than Oval did in this in his whole output where it's very much front and center. But I find that a very potent idea, and 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 it's always very interesting to ask yourself what's usually left out and what is the creative potential of revisiting those decisions that that. I've usually made and and deciding to do something else uh, mm. with with that material. Um, so that's that's why I think Oval has still kind of resonated with me on a process level. If not, obviously, I don't think my music sounds anything like Oval any, anymore. Though it did actually at the very beginning when I started doing it. Uh-huh. Um, so so yeah, that that's why I I always return to talking about Oval when I talk about my early influences. And do you remember how you first came to know the record? Or know about it, or hear it, even. Yeah, I, I was, I did a, um, I did a masters in cultural studies when I still lived in Australia, in Sydney, and there was just one subject on uh, sound art, and as part of that, I don't even know if Oval was mentioned, but but glitch music was, and. Um, it was through exploring glitch, which you know, which was a broader application of this idea of making making compositions out of, of of either data glitches or CD glitches or any other type of glitch. That I came across Oval, and and I liked it because I liked it more than all the other glitches because it well, it's actually I think his works a lot more a- ambient sounding and very. Just very delicate in parts, and the type of this, this is super nerd um, <laughs> aspect, but the way that he, the, the type of glitch that he manages to get, which I tried to replicate for ages, but I think it's just, it's a very pitched down CD skip. It's just a very beautiful sound. 
um, and some of the other, it's a lot harsher, like it caters, you know, material with digital composition, digital detritus or whatnot, is a lot harsher li listening experience. Um, whereas, yeah, Oval, I, I loved it for the idea, and then I loved it for the way that he realised his idea in this extremely beautiful, or many beautiful albums. Yeah. And was it something that you liked straight away? I mean, I was actually i'd never listened to this record before you put it forward in this selection which mm. as i started to read about it kind of surprised me because it seems to be one of these touchstone records that gets talked about a lot as a quote unquote classic of its time and yet never came into my listening but it took me a couple of listens before i could uh start to really derive something from it that i felt was valuable and in fact by the time i'd reached that point uh, I was listening to it on some speakers and my sister-in-law came into the room. I said, well, that's a B-side, I think, isn't it? Uh, about this piece. <laughs> and it's clearly, <laughs> it's clearly, you know, uh, music that I think does have a kind of innate jar to it. So was it something that you had to sort of gradually acquaint yourself with or, or, or was the uh, the beauty of it immediate to you when you listened to it? I think it was immediate to me, but I think probably because of that reason that I, I was saying earlier was that, you know, there was the, that was sort of the mill plateau time of that label. And a lot of that material was extremely heavy going to listen to. Mm. So, I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> so when I discovered Oval, I, I was... Like, okay, this is something that puts that idea into into a frame that, to me, was... I, f I feel like, yeah, pretty much immediately, com not just compelling, but that I did find very uh, beautiful. Whereas some of the other glitch-related compositions, I mean you can say that they're you know they're very sophisticated in their way or they're very well done but as a listening experience um like i put on ikeda's album here in where i'm doing this gallery installation and i was just like oh no no <laughs> <laughs> just, this is too much yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just re re reminding myself exactly what because that was the main album I did listen to, but I've listened to you know quite a number of others of his. But I was like, oh, you know what exactly is, was that like again? And then I was like, oh, yeah. it was actually a little <laughs> bit m more harsh to how I remembered it because I think what I took from that album was was actually the use of um, a lot of sign tones in in composition and and that is some, that is another thing that I've returned to a lot and and in that the thing itself and not the myth there's there's quite a lot of sign tones in that and yeah. and that that was one of the big things that Ikeda did that the kind of the purity of working with just you know however many pure frequencies was was something that I found really amazing um to because I hadn't come across that before, so... Yeah, I, I mean, purity is a really interesting question. I mean, to bring it back to Oval for a moment, there's the fact that you've got a physical medium in there, which creates this opportunity to rupture the purity uh, because you can damage that physical thing. Um, mm. I understand, mm. I don't know if it was this record or, or what, but when I was reading, apparently there was a lot of paint and tape and, and knives being uh, applied to the the cd to sort of generate uh the skips in the first place um but obviously now it's something that i guess as a as a means of sabotaging music somewhat feels quite 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 antiquated because it's not a format that people 
interface with really anymore apart from me i'm still trying to fly that flag but um <laughs> but if, is it is there something i mean when you listen to it now does it feel different uh, at all to uh, to when you first heard it um whether that's yeah. what it, it does yeah yeah i think so i mean i think i mean gosh i mean i don't want to, to be sacrilegious with for all the many fans that oval has but i i mean i do think it has dated and i hmm. think as the source material I think it was for that album. Was um, uh, was I think it was Aphex, one of Aphex Twins' um, albums. So ah. maybe it wasn't that album, but I know that that he did use um, an Aphex Twin album as the source material for for one of his. At least I think he did. So I don't know. I mean, it, to me, I'm not nowadays a big fan of very synth sounding type type material, and so to me that that record now I'm like oh yeah those kind of sounds and I don't yeah I don't love it as much I don't think it resonates as much in this era I mean purely simply for one of the reasons that you said that CDs aren't so ubiquitous there is not the idea anymore of as there once was of CD as the perfect music format that it's you know we'd mastered music production now because we'd come up with the, the lossless CD and then that was that um, so I think you know doing something like damaging a CD back then and using the skips is more interesting because it's engaging with lots of different ideas about that as a cultural product, like a cutting edge cultural product, which which it's not now. So yeah, to close out on this record, is there a particular track that kind of protrudes in your mind as as one that you think about when you think of this record? Um, oh, well, I no, I don't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I couldn't point to one track and be like, oh, uh, this is the one that sums up Oval for me, or um, or or something like that, because I again, it was more uh, more the process and and the realization of that process rather than one particular track that that I went, oh yeah, that's a killer track. I mean, I think it's kind of kind of the nature of what he was doing as well is that that i don't perhaps some people do have their like this is the best oval track but but for me oval is is i mean he's changed his work over the years now as well but but that era of oval is like it's a sound that is immediately recognizable which is an amazing thing i think also to achieve that you have that such signature sound that i can't conjure in my mind like oh that I, i you know that particular fragment of melody that skips and repeats in that particular track is so much better than these other ones um so yeah i don't know i mean perhaps i'm i i'm not as purist or in my listening to oval or as uh dedicated as i should have been but yeah i i, I, I can't i can't give you one track that i that i love the most that's absolutely fine I mean, let's move on to your next album. Uh, if you'd like to give me the name of it and, uh, again, why it's important to you. Um, so I guess we'll do Dataplex by Ryoji Ikeda. And 
again, I don't think I have, like, I'm not sure that I have a really long reason for liking this. I mean, obviously, he was and continues to be a very important figure in um, digital digital art in general, but back then more um, digital-based composition. And I liked that he was, again, working with sounds that not many other people were working with and that... I didn't actually. I didn't particularly love the the I and which has also continued this very kind of digital aesthetic of barcodes and um, you know uh, the installations that he does now. Is sort of almost well very ce- very celebratory, I suppose, of, of aspects of digital culture. Hmm. Um, but I liked I liked this kind of a simple thing, which was which was the use of these pure frequencies and the way that he combined them into really intricate and amazing compositions. And, you know, the idea of using um, just one little sign tone as, as an ongoing kind of rhythmic feature or, or, and bringing in, you know, very low rumbling sign throbs. I mean, I, I really liked listening. I, re- I remember I was working as a journalist back then. I had my first journalist job and I used to listen to this on the train on the way to work and I and no, I used to just be like, oh, I am so cool. Look at the <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to this amazing cutting edge um, music and da 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 da. And I think it just was the newness of it um, to me at that point and coming across these very different ways of composing. So. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there, I think, uh, that the installation work that he's gone on to do since perhaps doesn't chime with you so much. I mean, what's what's interesting is you mentioned with, uh, you know, his use of barcodes and, and a lot of the time, uh, these kind of large scale technological mm. and scientific projects. Um, yeah. There's a sort of abstraction from any human element, which I find is really interesting. Because uh, I remember speaking to a friend of mine about this kind of crop of artists, uh, you know, and similar artists on Rasta Noton, mm. um, uh, saying, well, surely you like this batch of artists. This was a few years ago. And he was like, um, well, no, I mean, it's a really displaced version of the internet. Like our bodies are all in that. And yet this mm. doesn't seem to depict that. I mean, is there, it, I mean, is there any reason you can pick out why, uh, I, I don't know, his, his sort of fixations since within his artworks have held less appeal to you than than when you were listening to this this music back then i mean i think it's probably for those reasons that that in a way that you that you've just out, outlined i mean I, when i first um came across sound art and this type of composition it was uh, around the time that this album came out and Back then, sort of, because I came to, came to it through an academic context, um, you know, there were there were quite a number of papers written about sound art as embracing as kind of a neo modernism. So there's, you know, it's just the form, and it's all about interrogating the form itself, and it's very removed from any kind of social or political context. Mm. And obviously, at that point, that was kind of considered a, a very kind of new well a new return if you want to put it that way um because I mean, obviously that kind of minimalism had been done before but that it was being revisited in this way through sound art um i thought that that was kind of an interesting moment um to have that that kind of trend i mean which still continues i think in sound art but 
of a very um, form-focused way of composing, um, that there's nothing outside the sound itself. Um, mm. And uh, But I think for me that was never going to be a long-term preoccupation of mine because... Um, well, it's, I guess it's always hard to know what aesthetically appeals to you or, or whatever. But I think even politically speaking or socially speaking, uh, my interests are are much beyond just a formal investigation of, of a medium. And so I don't know if, if you would agree with me, but I feel like his work has kind of maintained that as really a focus, as the investigation of, of this kind of neo-modernist, like, very techno-fetishism, oh, gosh, Jack, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> techno-fetishism, if you want to put it that way. Nice. Um, approach, and, and I mean, which Rast and Noton, I think, you know, they're, they're very emblematic of that type of composition, um, and I think, for me, that was a, more of a moment to be like, oh, wow, okay, um, that can lead to many interesting things and a very, uh, a use of very minimal components in composition, which which I, I still like. But I like much more now to plug that into a, well, usually a particular place itself, but certainly a, a particular social and political context. And, and also, I think in my own work, also like commitment to acknowledging the artist's, or my own in this case, uh, role in, in the composition the, the partiality of it, the subjectivity of it. So they're the kind of things that I like to have at the fore, which I would say it's almost to the uh, the opposite of what Ikeda has to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I, I, I'm not... It's probably not fair for me to put this on Ikeda's work, but something that I, I often think about is the fact that, I mean, as you say, uh, there's a sort of... There's a hard-edged kind of digitalism to his music which does sort of seem quite jarring with the way in which people interact with technology nowadays i mean i'm looking at my macbook as i'm speaking to you and it's got curved edges and yeah. it's it's uh, everything's more ergonomic and mm. it, you know there's it's it's accommodating me rather than with Ikeda's work there's this almost sometimes a sense of technology as, as this far off baffling thing that everyone's slightly frightened of and not sure of whereas that doesn't feel entirely reflective of now and perhaps it's perhaps it's telling perhaps it's not but the fact that his work maybe now fixates on you know CERN or Mm. the planets (laughs) I wonder if he's shifted his area of focus to the place where you know that's now the point that's inaccessible to to the layman or the person who's just using technology every day so he's kind of moved the goalposts a bit to kind of keep his aesthetic alive if you know what i mean yeah no i think it's a that's a very good point because i I think it is in those hard sciences now that that you know this kind of um that his approach does still resonate that it is so inaccessible and and kind of hard sci-fi almost in our imagination cern or yeah exactly uh, outer space or whatnot whereas the web and digital culture is it, i mean it's changed completely from when um even from this album um yeah as utterly transformed and what people look for what people critique about 
um, digital life is, you know, this lack of the human, this lack of real meaningful connections, you know, how to bring them into your digital life, seeing as it is such a pervasive aspect of today's world. So, but I mean, having said that, his work continues to resonate with many, many people. So I don't know. I mean, I think there's something about science, science slash sci-fi, you know, the digital realm of, of, of the way we of gathering hard data that his obviously his visualizations and sonifications of it um, people still find uh, amazing and, and compelling I mean for me that kind of very cool like as in not trendy cool but cold I suppose approach to those kind of issues are, are less interesting to me now but but obviously that's not the case for everyone Let's move to your third album now. Again, uh, if you'd like to tell me the name of it and a little bit about why it's important to you, Kate. Okay. Well, this one is a lot more um, uh, recent than the other two, and it's Below Sea Level by Simon Scott. And I chose this one probably as a bit of a contrast to the other two in the sense that I feel like it's a a very humble record. It's a very... um, kind of curtailed in what he's trying to to convey with it and I think it's a very successful example of that type of composition which to explain what it is uh, <laughs> you know is 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 basically field recording with um, with instrumentation which is which is something that I like and that I do and that isn't um, perhaps that that comment and I just think he did a a very lovely job um, of this album which is based on I believe it's based on an area that he uh, regularly walks in and um, and I just I I like it because it uh, it's it's not grandiose in any way it's very uh, intimate it's um, it's very humble as I said and and I think just compositionally it's 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 an extremely successful example of that type of material yeah i mean what i found interesting about this one is and i always find this interesting when i'm looking at albums that combine field recordings with you know a a sort of human or instrumental element the the dynamic that they kind of create between them I, i think i don't know it varies from record to record and in this particular album i mean it seems to undergo quite a a varied relationship throughout like the instruments sometimes feel like they're nestling in amongst the field recordings, almost like they're sprouting up from within them. But then sometimes there's points where some of the elements that Simon introduces almost like press nature to the edges and flatten it. Um, yeah, sorry, were you going to say something there, Kate? 
Um, I well, I was just going to agree with oh. you. Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. That's <laughs> nice. <laughs> Nothing too profound. <laughs> well, I was going to ask. In fact, is um, I mean, how do you think about the way in which you introduce? non-field recording elements into field recordings i mean do you have any thoughts on perhaps whether those instruments or whatever you're putting in should inhabit those field recordings or i i'm intrigued as to whether you've got any kind of thoughts about the the way in which those elements interact ah uh, yes now yeah. I, I always feel like i'm quite bad at talking about my compositional process but um <laughs> what do i think about that i the way that I usually approach adding those elements, it's usually right at the end. And I'll come, I'll have something that I'll think is nearly complete, but that the way that I, I usually think about it is like that it just needs something else to kind of heighten or to draw out the particular mood or aim of the piece. And so for me, that's when I turn to instrumentation to to just to just tweak or heighten um some aspect of of an already existing composition which which would um in my case have you know a lot of field recordings um already in it so i i guess i mean given that i i think obviously my approach is that it should nestle in and and be one one if you, ideally one instrument among among many in a sense that that are the materiality of the the sounds of the field recordings themselves if you can think of them as kind of instruments that come in and out those particular um, combinations of sounds and then this extra sound which which is a more traditional instrument ideally i guess stitching them together and 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 heightening aspects of them it's definitely interesting in the sense of this simon scott record i mean that guitar that comes in during the first track is it feels very much like a heart on sleeve kind of stuff in the in terms of the the uh i don't know the the, the emotional richness of that guitar in amongst that landscape um yeah yeah i was re-listening to it um this morning actually and and I was struck, um, exactly as you say, by some of the guitar. That I, re- I, I don't think I remembered su- some of it as being quite so dramatic, the way it just surges in. Right. So, I mean, I think he's, a, he's, he's obviously gone for, for more of a mix of approaches, and sometimes the guitar is absolutely um, dominant and very front and centre. Uh, but, I mean, uh, yeah, and then he brings in... But I like also the fact that he may have a very dominant, this very dominant guitar at points, but then it's layered in or, or woven in with lots of very subtle and quiet um, sounds from this from this region that he's visiting that, that's certainly not um, by any means uh, it seems to be doesn't have very many dramatic sounds in it whatsoever <laughs> so so I, I think that's quite a nice um, mixture of tones that that he's able to bring together I like it as a sort of I mean the way I thought about it was almost like there's this when I think of a lot of my favorite places to to inhabit they are dull in the sense that there's nothing that you could point to for uh, for the eyes or the ears or anything that leaps out as spectacular and yet there's something nice about the guitar kind of saying well you you know this is a place i love it's very difficult to convey (laughs) so here's a melody that kind of freewheels through the center and 
sort of indicates that emotional resonance that it has beyond what you can you know simply hear within within the soundscape itself yeah yeah exactly i mean that sort of internal external dynamic that's always one of the very interesting and amazing things about our interaction with space and place you know what we bring inside ourselves and and what um occupying particular locations um gives us and and yeah i mean i just i like this record in particular because because it is so like anti grandiose if you want to, like, <laughs> which, is, which i know it's not a proper term but it's it's just it's just uh it's doing what it what what it does and it and it's not trying to be anything more um which i think can be a very nice and also courageous thing uh to do as an artist yeah absolutely and uh did i read that is he in slow dive as well the band slow he dive? is yeah he's the drummer what Wow. Yeah. So, so he's uh, yeah he's uh, he obviously he's a very successful guy going around the world with this very successful band and then he has his own solo um, work as well. Yeah. So <laughs> in between worldwide tours and dipping back into the fens for a, yeah for a exactly <laughs> the life exactly. of a shoegaze rock star. That's the yeah, way it goes. Poor, poor guy. He's got it rough. <laughs> <laughs> One other question I had for you, Kate, which is um, whether you have a, a place or an environment in which you listen to records when you really want to uh, have like an intimate experience with an album, if, when you want to soak it up in its entirety. Uh, do you have any particular place, any sort of, I, I don't know, speakers or headphones or something that uh, acts as a sort of optimal environment for you to ingest a record? Um, yeah, well, um, this is one thing that I actually want to change about my life because I have had no good places to listen to records for the past couple of years, um, which has been extremely unfortunate. And I'd gotten out of the habit of even listening to very much new music because well, I've been quite busy and also I get demos for um, for my label. And so, you know, but I was just like, well, between listening to the demos and listening to the stuff I'm putting out on the label and then listening to my own stuff, I, I realised I wasn't listening to very much uh, new music at all. But I definitely want to change that. And, well, I mean, my favourite place to listen was always um, cycling which which is always a you know is a very dangerous was a very dangerous <laughs> way of <laughs> doing it um but I, I i used to love always to listen to many records with uh just little headphones on cycling and this is uh, one of the amazing things actually moving to brixton is that i noticed that these days people have like those bluetooth speakers that you just like put 
putting you back and just pump out music. Right. And so you're, you're like this little moving kind of bubble of music that just shoots through the environment. And it's amazing to, um, to experience that. Like, because I live above an alleyway of, that joins like Hearn Hill to Brixton. So it's, and it's like a very well-used alleyway. And I love lying in my room and hearing the cyclists come from the top of the alleyway with their amazing throbbing like bag full of speakers and coming out the bottom. And, <laughs> and I'm like, so I was thinking, I mean, I would actually be too self-conscious to ride around with my speakers kind of blaring attached to my bicycle. Um, right. But I'm going to, I'm going to start riding again. And, uh, and I will, I will, I am a very good rider with listening to music on little headphones. So, I, I think I will re, uh, reanimate that practice, and uh, but also I'm I'm going to start. I'm going to have a proper studio soon, so uh, I hope to listen to more music in there as well. Oh, fantastic! And um, actually, the other question that I had as well was whether there was any honorary mentions uh, that you wanted to to put forward here in addition to the three albums, because I know it's sometimes a bit tricky to distill down to three. So, is there any other albums that you wanted to to bring up here? Oh yes, well this was this this is good you've asked this, Chuck, because um, <laughs> as, as, as you know, I was feeling extremely self-conscious that I'd picked three men and hadn't come up with um, any important women artists for my formative years, which I think you know is a reflection of the way that sound art was was presented at least in an academic context um, about 15 years ago was that it was exceptionally um, male dominated but uh, not that it actually was you know I mean there was plenty of significant women artists working back at those times but for some reason they never made it into my sound art course Mm. so um, I would like to do some uh, shout outs I mean one I didn't actually know about it at the time, but is a more historic figure. But Anne Lockwood, um, who I believe is in, has an installation in London right now of her Hudson River project, which is a, a, a series of recordings tracking the path. Uh, of the river itself and um and i think that's an absolutely amazing uh project that that she did and uh and it's hugely significant for field recordists in in many ways but for me in particular this idea of of tracking a path of something and um i know i know in that piece you can slowly start to hear you know more industrial uh sounds coming coming through the river as it goes uh in and out of of townships and things like that. So um, I, I think that's an amazing project. And, I mean, today there's such a plethora of brilliant female um, or woman-identifying uh, musicians. And um, uh, I particularly like Felicia Atkinson, as basically everyone does, I think, and, <laughs> um, and Melanie Villard. And uh, I was lucky enough to uh, experience um, Tomoko Savage's work uh, relatively recently. And, oh, fantastic. Uh, I, I, yeah, and I think what she does is also really, really brilliant. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Kate. It's been great to get your, your list of records and also to talk about uh, your new record as well. I mean, if people want to keep up to date with what you're doing, is there a best place for them to go online to do that? Um, yes, I'm quite, I feel like I don't keep my website very updated, but I have a website which is gleamingsilverribbon.com and also can just buy records of mine, which is always very appreciated, <laughs> uh, at my band camp, which is just Kate Carr, uh, at band camp, however you find that, but yeah, that's it. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Cool. Thanks so much. To everyone listening, I'll see you next time. <laughs>